on that coordinated terror attack in Kenya, a country popular with American tourists. Yeah, the hostage crisis in the upscale Westgate Mall is ongoing at this hour. And here are the latest numbers. According to the Kenyan government, there are almost 60 dead, more than 175 injured, including four Americans. As of right now, there are still 10 Evil exists. Sin is real. Pain is, unfortunately, a part of life. Like many other mass shootings that have plagued us in the last 20 years, the Westgate Mall shooting in Nairobi, Kenya, took its toll on the souls of its victims and their families. Today's guest, Gladys Mowiti, is being used by God to help people heal from the emotional and spiritual wounds of events like that in the mall in Kenya. I love the hope that is in Kenya and the rest of Africa. We seem to bounce back from horrible misfortunes. We're supposed to die of AIDS, we didn't die. We are hit left and right and center and we still continue to stand. My name is Angel Torero. I want to welcome you to On Mission with Chris Wright, a podcast produced by Langham Partnership. Visit langham.org to learn more about Langham. What can Christians in Indiana learn from Christians in Indonesia? How can church leaders in Mumbai equip pastors in Miami, which is where I live and serve? On this podcast, we listen in on conversations between Chris Wright and church leaders in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, where my family has their roots. We hope you discover how much wisdom the church in the West has to gain from their sisters and brothers in villages and towns around the world. This podcast is brought to you by the Langham Partnership, a ministry founded by John Stott, to equip church leaders in the majority world. Visit langham.org to learn more about Langham and explore more resources from global church leaders. Our host is Dr. Christopher J.H. Wright, known to many as Chris Wright, a respected theologian and award-winning author of more than 30 books, including critically acclaimed The Mission of God, Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative. When he's not writing books, Chris serves as International Ministries Director for Langham. Today, we take you to Nairobi, Kenya, and Chris's conversation with Gladys Mowiti. Gladys is a global authority on trauma counseling, work that has put her on the front lines of tragedies like the Rwandan genocide and Nairobi's Westgate mall attacks. Gladys is teaching the church to not only proclaim that God is good all the time, but to live it out by drawing near to the broken and the suffering. I hope you enjoy their conversation. Welcome to On Mission. I'm Chris Wright, and today we're heading to Africa, to Nairobi, the capital city of Kenya, to be precise, where it's my great honor to introduce you to Dr. Gladys Mwiti. Dr. Mwiti is a clinical psychologist there in Nairobi, uh, and she's a global authority on trauma counseling. So welcome, Gladys. Thank you. It's great to have you with us today. Now, before we we talk together, I thought it'd be good just to let me tell folks a little bit more uh, about my guest. Uh, Dr. Gladys Mwiti, along with her husband, Gershon, uh, is the founder and CEO of Oasis Africa, which is a center for transformational psychology and trauma. And I'll give you the website to their Oasis Africa a little bit later. This is a Pan-African professional organization, which has been involved professionally in 
trauma counseling interventions in some of the worst incidents of violence and suffering around the world, including, for example, the Rwanda genocide in 1994, the Nairobi USA embassy bombing in 1998, more recently the Westgate Mall attack in 2013, and the Garissa University student killings in 2015. And as well as all that kind of trauma counseling and therapy work, Dr. Mwiti is also involved in advocacy, uh, collaborating with government offices and community organizations and churches. And she also serves as the chair of the Kenya Psychological Association. But perhaps best of all, Gladys is a Langham scholar. In fact, both Gladys and her husband, Dr. Gershon Mwiti, got their PhDs at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena and then started Oasis Africa Counseling together. So in fact, there are two Dr. Mwitis, but it's Gladys that I'm talking to at the moment. So Gladys, we love to begin with people's personal story. And I wonder if you'd just like to tell us a little bit about your journey that led you into the counseling world. And I gather that you actually had an early career in high school teaching. You, you were a chemistry teacher, I believe. What, what was it about your teaching that led you in the direction of mental health and trauma and, and the counseling world? Um, I thought uh, that I got married in 1973 and then joined my husband Gershon in Nairobi and then taught in two um, day high schools. Now, these day high schools actually taking kids from the suburbs, from the Nairobi suburbs, which are low, um, low economic status, lots of crime, violence. And so uh, in my last year of teaching high school in a girls' school, um, I mean, whenever I went as a Christian, um, in, in Kenya, wherever you go as a Christian, you are a missionary. And for me, I've always been a missionary, bringing kids to the Lord, starting Christian unions. And so there was a big, mighty revival in my last high school. And one of the girls that came to the Lord was a 14-year-old, who I knew along the way as I counseled her and discipled her, that um, she was living in a very troubled home. Um, violent father and you know all the troubles that go with domestic violence. And so one day she came running into school. I was just about, this is a day school. I was, uh, I was then the deputy headmistress in that school. And of course led the prayers and everything. So um, I have the whole school lined up before me and just about to pray. And she came running late, sweating and crying. And she said, I got to talk to you right now. So I said, can I finish prayer? She said, I want to talk to you. So I told her, I go to my office and wait for me there. So afterwards, I found her still weeping in the office. And I asked her, Susan, what's, what's the problem? And as I said, I had led her to the Lord the year before. And I knew she was in a troubled home. Then she told me, you know, I'm the firstborn and this morning, um, I woke up and found um, my two siblings ready to go to school, but even the baby and the house help were dressed. And mom told me when I came downstairs with my school bag, go back up, Susan, and pack your things. We are leaving. Mom said, we are leaving your father today because I knew that the girl would come and tell me stories like 
every time they began fighting, I have to wait until my dad comes home late at night, 3 a.m. in the morning. And when they began fighting, I jump into the bedroom and I stand between the two of them so they don't hate each other. And so she said, last night he came, they didn't fight, but I waited until they slept. But the whole week there's been so much tension. So this morning, my mom says, we are going. I said, mom, going where? We're going to your grandma's. Who is going to grandma's? I know I'm going to school. It's like all of us. And dad, I'm not talking about, about your father. I'm talking about you and your siblings. Let's go. She said, but mom, we cannot leave daddy alone. Because even the housemaid is going. Then mother looks at her and she tells me, my mom said, Susan, if you love me, you come with me. If you love your dad more than you do love me, then stay with him. Hmm. And so she told me, Mrs. Mwiti, I, I started crying. I said, mom, someone has got to stay with dad. So she, she said, I picked up my bag. I ran all the way to school. And now she looks at me in the face and says, did I do the right thing? Uh-oh. Mm. I knew how to put uh, solutions together in chemistry and how to balance pendulums. <laughs> but I didn't know what to do with broken girls. So I did the best I could to comfort her. And once again, like I usually would do, I came home to Gershon, my husband, and I said, I don't know what to do. Mm. It had become a common story. Anytime I came home to tell him about broken kids, and so he told me, why don't you go back to school and get some tools to help these children? Hmm. So long story short, I left the classroom. The ministry didn't think they needed psychologists, so they stopped my salary. As soon as I walked out, I went to a private university, the only one offering anything to do with psychology or counseling in Kenya, the United States International University, paying international private school fees. And Gershon worked himself to the bone, doing literal odd jobs at night and day to pay my school fees. He told me, what about your grades? I what about your school fees. <laughs> That's my story. Good progression. And that led you through that eventually to a, a PhD in counselling at Fuller. So uh, that's, that's quite a journey from the high school to a PhD and then your career since then. Yeah, so I got my bachelor's. Um, I did very well, graduated first class honours, the best student in the university. Went back, got my master's. And then in 1990, I told the Lord, here I am, let's go. And by the way, um, Chris, I didn't want to begin something. I mean, we had emptied everything. We, we, we were in the red mm. as far as savings are concerned. So I, I had enough qualifications to get an international job, United Nations or something, mm. to pay the family for all they had spent on me. But then I prayed hard and I ended up coming to England um, to Selwyn Hughes is very first Christian Institute at Waverly Abbey House. And I sat at Selwyn's feet. Mm -hmm. And that's where the Lord placed the vision of voices in my heart. Mm -hmm. Selwyn laid his hands on me because I shared with him the calling. And he told me, Gladys, go home and begin our literal counseling center. Mm -hmm. And that's how voices came to be. That's wonderful. 
let's let's take a little bit of a break from your career and uh, Oasis and just talk about about Africa and yes. Kenya uh, because we, we always love to hear what is obviously there are many things that we know that are challenging that are a problem that are in many ways hor- hor- horrendous but but let's start with the good things what, what is it you love about your own country and your culture and the food and all those kind of things just enthuse us uh, about your homeland <laughs> Well, as you know, Kenya is beautifully beautiful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we are right at the equator. So everything, even our long stem roses that we export to the rest of the world, grows straight up. I think some, something to do with the altitude. Anyway, beautiful country, wonderful flowers. We are there, one of the highest exporters of cut flowers and hot culture to other countries. Mm-hmm. Kenya is beautiful, wonderful soil, wonderful people. But then also, um, I love the hope um, that is in Kenya and the rest of Africa. We seem to bounce back from horrible misfortunes. Uh, We are supposed to die of AIDS, we didn't die. (laughs) 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 Even COVID, apart from the spike, we were doing very well with COVID. Um, So it's like, um, there's a lot of hope. We are hit left and right and center and we still continue to stand. Hopeful young population, yeah, um, 75% are under 30. So we are an emerging continent in terms of human capital. Um, and then a lot of um, encouragement one for another, a lot of corporate spirit, uh, social support, and so on and so forth. So those are some beautiful things. And then of course we are people of faith as Africans. Mm. We are incredibly, um, spiritual. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes I, it, it is amazing. When I go to Kenya and other, other parts of, of Africa, the greeting that people will say is, you know, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. And they say this even in the most appalling circumstances, there, there is an irrepressible spiritual resilience, which I think is, is quite remarkable. Yes. Is that one of the things, do you think, and perhaps you could mention others, that uh, those of us who live in the West could learn, particularly in the Western church from the African church and the church in your own country? What, what kind of things can we learn from our sisters and brothers there? I think <clears throat> one of the things is that once you've bra- you have embraced faith, then be vibrant in your faith. I mean, we've chosen to be people of the cross, for example. So live it, drive in it. Talk about it, you know, rejoice in it. So we, we are not like halfway about our faith. Either we belong or we don't. Nothing like sitting in the middle. Mm-hmm. So I think that is something that is very African, that we just love to ce- celebrate faith together. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, those who have literal, like you go to the villages where every Sunday people are in church until like 4 p.m. They just bring food. They bring huge frosts of hot tea because like, my village is cold because of the mountain. So we drink tea together, eat food together, and just laugh and sing and dance together. So That sounds wonderful. I've, I've been in services like that sometimes that go on all day, uh, which is so unusual for us in, in the West, where if a church service goes on more than an hour, people are getting restless. So it's, uh, and you wonder where they're going. You know? <laughs> yeah. 
it sounds to me like what you were saying at the beginning there is living out what Deuteronomy says. Do you remember when uh, God says to his people, talk about God's ways, God's law, when you get up in the morning, when you walk about in the street, when you come home in the evening, you know, put it on the doorposts of your house. There's this tremendous sense that uh, the presence of God and the word of God and the will of God should occupy us in everyday life all the time, not just weekends or Sundays or whatever it might be. That sounds like you're describing that kind of living. Absolutely. And I think the, the other reason, Chris, is that uh, we don't have much. We are not rich people. We are not affluent, except, of course, for a few families. And so if Christ is all you have, then Christ becomes everything you need, because that's all you have. Mm-hmm. So basically, I think our need um, I mean, we are not poor. We have enough food to eat and clothes on our back. But we are not running around with affluence. People in the village are not going to be running away to play golf. The cow was fed in the morning, so we shall feed the cow again in the evenings. (laughs) Yes. We could go on talking about those wonderful things uh, for a long time, and it's good that we do, because I think people sometimes have a very negative picture of of Africa, and it's good to be reminded that there's such beauty there and and such joy uh, and a community life that is very, very rich. Uh, And there is a a kind of richness which is not the same thing as material wealth, but is actually much more enduring. But I think we do have to come to the fact that, of course, uh, there are massive problems in Africa. And I just want to quote to you something that you wrote in an article that you wrote in 2005 uh, under the the title of Rethinking Mission and God's Call to Peacemaking Through the Healing of the Nations. Uh, And here I quote that you wrote, Africa crawled into the dawning of the 21st century like a huge giant covered in rags and bleeding. And faced with this reality, there is no way that the church worldwide can preach a gospel that neglects to address the wounds of Africa, end quote. And I just wonder whether you can tell us more about those wounds and particularly, do you attribute those wounds of Africa only to the historical roots that many of us are, of course, familiar with, the roots of slavery and of colonialism and so on, or are there modern factors that you have in mind that are inflicting such wounds or keeping those old wounds still festering and infected? Um, Thank you, Chris. Yes, we have definitely historical wounds, but some of them have crept into the current uh, society. Take, for example, neocolonialism, colonialism, where the bad habits we learned from our colonial masters, we repeat them today Mm. um, in our own populations. So you could as well have a white master, but this time in a black skin, sorry to say, because somehow we were not taught well in terms of leadership. I mean, leadership is not taught, by the way, in many of our universities. Gershon's uh, doctorate from Fuller is leadership. And he has done tremendous work with the church, with the government, with the, with the county governments, training on leadership of integrity, his book, um, the incorruptible, leading with dignity and integrity is almost a bestseller mm. because there is such a vacuum in terms of training leaders to lead. 
And so there is a neo-colonialism, and then there is also re-colonialism, by the way, where actually nations that used to colonize Africa, and even those that did not colonize like China, because of our resources, they are buying quote-unquote governments. Mm. So um, our corruption becomes very progressive because often it's driven by people that want to recolonize. And colonialism may not be mean taking over the government to rule, but taking over the trade, taking over relationships that uh, would bring prosperity to Africa. So this has led to the ripping of our natural resources. Mm. Take DR Congo. I mean, the, one of the richest nations with all the minerals, the diamonds, the cobalt, the whatever. But then the war in DR Congo does not end. The bloodshed is perpetual. And it's not Congolese fighting. It's outside influence that must take the diamonds through rebel movements in the grassroots. Um, I, I was in Belgium, Chris, and sorry to make long story short. I passed through Belgium. There's a time when, if you remember, uh, Sierra Leone was in crisis. So I had to fly to Belgium from Nairobi and then fly back to Frita. Hmm. Uh, anyway, I spent a day in Belgium. Now, I noticed that Belgium is so rich in cut diamonds. It's the second highest export. They don't mind diamonds. Well, where do they come from? It's obvious. So basically, um, wars and conflict. And then another threat that has come to Africa is a prosperity gospel. Mm -hmm. uh, where the gospel is preached to the poor and they're exploited in the name of praying for them for prosperity. So salvation is put aside and it's all about the preacher becoming richer and flying the next helicopter. Um, and, and, and so some of this is the, the vacuum of the fact that pastors are not trained. For example, I looked at, looked at some statistics that say that in Rwanda, only 5% of pastors have been to theological seminary. And then I said, is this different from other countries? I found a 2011, statistic of USA where only 12% of pastors in churches that actually follow Christian theology, 12% have been to theological seminary. Mm -hmm. So you wonder why, why do Christians think that they can run the church without theological training when doctors must go to medical school to do operations mm -hmm. and engineers must go to engineering school to, to design roads and aircrafts and airports. Why does the church become so simplistic that we think you can pick the Bible and run a mega church without the science of faith? So those are some of the vacuums in Africa. I love that phrase, the science of faith. The, the understanding and the knowledge of our faith, which, of course, uh, the, the Bible constantly tells us about. I mean, in the Old Testament, the, the Israelites were told to teach, to teach and teach their children and the, each generation. The priests were supposed to be teachers. And in the New Testament, of course, Jesus was teaching for three years. And then, then the Apostle Paul tells uh, Timothy to be teaching others. So 
you're absolutely right that this idea that somehow the church can do without good teaching and understanding of our faith is, is really quite ridiculous. Yeah, and, and so it means then that, Chris, uh, if we do not know our science, quote-unquote, we cannot apply what we don't know. Hmm. And so sometimes my husband and I talk about the disconnect of the church from the real realities. You know, that's why I said we are preparing people for heaven, but not training uh, them to live on earth. Hmm. So church pulpits that are disconnected from the questions of the peasant farmer who worships in that church and brings their offering every Sunday. Does the pastor ever address the productivity mm -hmm. of the farmer and his cow and his maize crop? Mm -hmm. Does the pastor ever talk to parents about the struggles of parenting? What about marriages that are falling apart? What about work-life balance? And some of the most imbalanced people are ministers of the gospel. I think that's probably true worldwide, not just in Kenya. I know. <laughs> what, what you were just, I think you were virtually quoting yourself there, Gladys, because again, I, I have something that you wrote in that same article in 2005, and it has to do with this, the nature of what mission and ministry should be about and where it should be uh, fitting in. I, I quote, transformational mission cannot but be holistic in policy and approach for too long. Many of us have preached the gospel fitting people for heaven, but poorly preparing them to live on earth. What yeah. does living on earth today look like? We live mm -hmm. in a broken world with too many struggling to survive against many odds. Do you think preaching, I mean, we can speak about the rest of the world, but preaching in the African churches, particularly in Kenya, is too heavenly minded, as we might say, uh, you gave some examples of the kind of way pastors need to be applying their faith. Uh, perhaps you'd like to say more about that or about the, the deficiency of the prosperity gospel, which mm -hmm. only seems to ever make its preachers prosperous. I think, again, the problem is, take, for example, I'm a psychologist, okay? I see clients and I say to that client who begins to tell me their story. And I need to listen real carefully to be able to diagnose the issues that they are bringing. So someone may say, you know, I'm not sleeping very well. I find myself more sad, more sad than usual these days. Uh, I go to sleep and I have nightmares. <clears throat> and so I'll be asking, what has happened in your life of late? You know, and I know where I'm going with that question. So why am I able to diagnose from hearing a story? Of course, at the end, I'll do a psychological assessment to rule out whatever I think is going on. Is because I have knowledge in my head of what a particular mental health condition should look like. So here you have a pastor with very little training in matters of faith and doctrine, and that is the product he is always selling to his congregants every day. So without that, then you'll not be able to ask questions of, there is endemic poverty in this community. What are the factors that are driving the poverty? All you do is tell them you are not praying hard enough. Mm. Bring in a seed, plant the seed of offertory, and the Lord shall bless you. But you may be talking to a woman living with an alcoholic husband who drinks all the money, and she is the only one who has to act out her living. 
to support her children. If only he had, even if he doesn't know, if only he had focus groups of such women, talk about poverty, what solutions can we bring to the table? So is that, that's why I'm saying it's a simplistic gospel of fitting people for heaven, especially the prosperity gospel. And the person that ends up benefiting and getting worshipped is a pastor. Mm. Let me give you an example. I, I preach a lot in churches and I was in a huge church during a ladies conference, I think two years ago, with 3,000 women present. Now this mega church is founded in almost a slum area. And so it was packed with women from this community. When we came, okay, I preached my sermon beautiful, I mean, beautifully, I addressed the needs of women that I was asked to address. And then the bishop took over from me now to talk about praying and how God should break through for them. And then started praying for people. Come, I pray for you. And the hundreds of crying women were lying on the stairs that led to the pulpit, on their faces weeping and crying. Others were bringing bundles of money, placing them on the altar. Because they have been told, if you put money here, you receive a blessing from the bishop. I wept that day. And of course, after the prayer, all of them got up and went away. Question, what issues were they bringing? Who wanted to know? And even if they listened, who had the capacity to understand? What solutions were there? So when a woman like that goes home and nothing in her home has changed, guess who doesn't have the faith? It's her. It, it can actually destroy faith rather than strengthen faith. Absolutely, and bring a lot of anger against this God who doesn't hear. I love how Gladys' heart leads her to enter into the suffering of others, a posture that comes alongside and listens. We can all learn something from that. Thanks so much to Gladys and Chris for the blessing of that conversation. And it's not over. Join us next week for the conclusion of their conversation when Chris and Gladys talk about some encouragement she got from John Stott and some of the misconceptions we have about Christians and depression. In the meantime, if you want to learn more about Gladys' counseling work, visit www.oasisafricawellness.co.ke. Again, I'm Angel Torero. And thank you for joining me for On Mission with Chris Wright, a podcast produced by Langham Partnership. Visit langham.org to discover how they multiply and equip leaders like Gladys around the world. If you enjoyed today's conversation, will you let us know by giving us a review and sharing this with a friend? And then join me for future episodes where we'll be talking to leaders in Zambia, Palestine, Kenya, Brazil, and beyond. We look forward to having you join for our next episode of On Mission with Chris Wright. In the meantime, God bless. Mm-hmm.